My guest today is one of the best-known warm-up guys in the business. He's warmed up The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, ABC's Match Game with Alec Baldwin, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, The President Show, and others. And he's open for comedians such as Gilbert Gottfried. Plus, I've... I did stand up with him 15 years ago. So, ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Bartini. Kevin, welcome. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's been, uh, I can't believe it's 15 years it's been, huh? Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it either because my daughter's eight. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, sorry. I mean, it makes sense. I started like 20 years ago. And what's the, the surreal thing is I remember some comedian coming in once in a while to do a spot, especially like mothers, you know, and and hanging out in a green room with like a toddler while, while you know, Sherry Davy was performing, I remember. And and now her kid's like completely grown up and that's stuff that really blows your mind. You know, <laughs> people's entire lifetimes have been going on since we've been doing this. But thanks for having me on your show, man. Oh, no, thank you. Um, first question I asked everybody was when and where were you born? So I was born in uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, uh, uh, in the Berkshires, which is in the Western Mass. Okay. I was born in uh, March of 1979, just the, the week after uh, the Three Mile Island disaster. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah, how I, was just, I was just thinking about that recently, like, the, um, you know, I was, I was, we had a nuclear meltdown in the country the week I was born, and then all these major historic events that have happened since then, just in my lifetime, you know, the 9-11 right. wars, the, that kind of stuff, you know, up to this pandemic right now, it's been, been pretty wild, pretty wild ride, depressing. How far away did you, your family live from Three Mile Island? Oh, far. I mean, Massachusetts and Three Mile Island was down Pennsylvania way, but it was just a big national news. Right. We were nowhere near as close to it, although I've been close to a number of things, like, you know, um, just living here in New York City, you know, walk, I, I walked past the car where the guy had the car bomb that didn't go off. I've right. And, you know, much closer to a lot of things. Okay. And who are your earliest comedy influences? The earliest was, um, well, was the original cast of Saturday Night Live because they used to repackage um, the original SNL episodes into 30-minute episodes that were on Nick at Night, and my dad turned me on to those when I was like six or seven. And then, uh, and then, then I got into stand-up a little while later because I was a kid during the 80s, during that boom, and it was everywhere, and uh, I was really into it. So Jerry Seinfeld was huge for me. Mm. Um, he was the one that really stands out um, going back, but there, there was plenty of people back then that I that I dug. And then I got a little bit older, and then I got into George Carlin, and then, uh, you know, and then I became friendly with Lewis Black, who I'd already kind of, you know, I really respected his comedy and dug what he was doing. He was so original and then became, you know, friendly with him and whatnot. So he was an influence and it goes on from there. But the early ones were Steinfeld and, and Carlin, for sure. 
Okay. And uh, do, you, do you think your style is more like Jerry Seinfeld, George Carlin, or your own? Uh, I, w- I would say it's more my own compared to those two because they're very distinct. Yes. Uh, I'm definitely not, I mean, Jerry is so observational, but, but not, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, I don't know. I, my style isn't like him or like Gaffigan where you can really break down something mundane and get, you know, get seven minutes out of something small, like the cup holder at a movie theater seat. Um, so I'm not that style. Okay. Uh, and Carlin is, because of my association with him now and his legacy, especially, I, I try to be different because I don't want people to think that I'm trying to glom onto it or anything. And I'm also not a big guy. I, I, I think that a lot of his comedic legacy now is people who are more activists than comedians, mm-hmm. more trying to change the world than trying to get a laugh. And Clap, Clapter? Clapter, exactly. Yeah. And that turns me off. So while I love George and I love Jerry, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely for, you know, on my own, my own voice more than either, I would say. How are you involved with uh, George Crone? Well, I led a campaign um, about, well, actually a number of years ago, but uh, I, I started a campaign in New York City to petition the city to name a street after George Carlin, and it was my idea, and I started it by standing out on a street corner on 121st Street um, on the Upper West Side, Morningside Heights, which is not far from my apartment, the same neighborhood. Right. And and I was, you know, just asking people to sign a petition. And then I, once I got 500 signatures, I submitted it to the local, you know, the local governing board at the first step. And as soon as I did that, it became news. And what made it big news was that the Catholic Church, which is right on that street, put up a fight. And all of a sudden it made national news because this, you know, stoner comic is fighting the Catholic Church over George Carlin. And next thing you know, I'm in the New York Times and the Daily News and this, this, and that. And the problem with the church, their argument was, well, first of all, the, the head of the church at the time was this bitter old man, and he knew George and had a personal beef with him that went all the way back to George's albums in the 70s. Right. And But he was saying that he, he was trying to protect children from George Carlin, and this is when the Catholic Church is, was at, at the point of least being known for protecting children. So the irony right. was that. Yeah. Anyway, it was, a, it was a campaign that should normally, to get a street co-named in someone's honor should take about 18 months but this one took three years so it was it was three years in the press it was three years in you know all sorts of stuff and we won and we we got the street sign and it's up and it was it was a success um but just the fact that it took three years and the fact that i you know i've done a thousand interviews and stuff like that i became very almost protective for myself that I didn't because you know how cynical comedians are I didn't ever 
ever want anyone to think that I was doing this for any reason that wasn't altruistic, that I was trying to advance my own career, that I, you know, oh, he just found a way to, to get his name in the paper and to get some notoriety. So, I mean, it's like, it's been like six years almost right. since we put that sign up and I'm only now because we're in quarantine, you know, growing my hair out a bit and having a beard and that kind of stuff. Like, <laughs> right. I really, I, I mean, it was a wonderful experience. And I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't change a minute of it. I became friends with Kelly's, his daughter. She's made me an honorary member of their family. So That's I'm like nice. the adopted son. He never, never knew. But that was one of the things, like I wanted to make sure my comedy and my standup didn't seem to be ripping him off. Cause I, I just, cause when I started doing it and all that, I had just, you know, started working for John Stewart. And that was, that was the thing when John hired me at the daily show that bumped was the thing that bumped me up from feature act to headliner. So I, I had earned it. It had taken me 10, 11 years to get to that point. I'd earned all that already on my own and I didn't want, I didn't want any of that taken away or people to think that it came just because I did something like George Carlin way. So I don't know. Does that make sense? I knew that, uh, I knew that they changed the name of the street, and I did not know you had anything to do with it. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good, guys. I was like, oh, good. They're 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 uh, acknowledging that George Carlin lived there. That's nice. Absolutely. That's no, all. It is. It is. It, and the thing was, there was a reason I did it. Is I um, I I always knew he grew up in my neighborhood, uh, where I live, and I was proud of that fact. And I never knew exactly why. But then his memoir came out posthumously um he'd been gone about three years at the time and he talked about he had a whole chapter on his neighborhood and the building it's called the miami building and he put the address of the building in so i took a walk over just to see the building you know mm-hmm. and for a carlin fan those that block that stuff so much of class clown occupation fool his his um his sitcom that he did was based in that neighborhood. He used to give like interviews walking that neighborhood. He was, his mother lived there almost till the day she died. I mean, he had such a connection to it. If you're a comedy fan and the amount of material that he generated from that street, it's important. It's your Abbey Road, you know? It would be a pilgrimage to go just see it. And being up there, it just kind of struck me that there wasn't a plaque on the building. There wasn't a name on the street. There wasn't a, a sandwich named after him at the deli. There, it, you would have no idea. And uh, so that's where the idea just came from. Like, somebody ought to do this. And then from somebody ought to do this was, well, why don't I do it? And that's what happened. Yeah, I'm a humongous uh, Carlin fan as well. Yeah. Um, he, him and Rodney Dangerfield were my two uh, guys. Yeah, yeah. Rodney was great, too. Rodney's, the- Rodney's of course, in... in, in um, is always an inspiration for comics because he didn't make it till you know later in life, yeah. quite, a, quite a bit older, and that's that's something different, you know. I don't know in this uh, in this industry now, you know, if that's as possible, but it, it's a it's a great story. The other one I, I like is, um, you know, I, I I remember you remember the old New York Comedy Club when it was a dive, right before when it was on Twenty Fourth Street and and. Uh, before it was bought up and changed. Yeah. They had, they had that. I remember one of the first times I played there, 
they had um, a framed new newspaper. Uh, and it was like a listing of all the comedy clubs and and who they had playing that weekend. And I don't know, maybe this was the first weekend that the club was open. I don't know the significance of it, but it was it was back a while, um, probably from the early '80s. And I'm looking through it. I'm looking at the names, and one of the names that popped up that had, that was playing one of the clubs was Vaughn Meter. And in uh, Vaughn Meter, of course, was the biggest guy in comedy for a while because he was doing, he did the first family album. He was, he did a dead on John F. Kennedy impression and his albums in the Smithsonian. Von Meter famously, when Kennedy was killed, the next night, I think, Lenny Bruce was playing Carnegie Hall and he he opened his act that said, you know, Von Meter is fucked. And uh, and he truly was. I mean, his career ended then, and then he kind of, I think he kind of started to make a comeback with Bobby Kennedy, and then we know how that went. And Vaughn had a sad life from then on out. But what I, what I liked about seeing his name there was the idea that this was, this newspaper was a solid 20 years since the Kennedy assassination. But the idea that there was still a home, a place for this guy to perform, and it was in the city clubs, he still was able to get some work. He was still able to do it, and I, and I liked that. I, I found that comforting that there was. You can always go back to the clubs. There's always going to be, there's always going to be a stage somewhere. It may not be Carnegie Hall, but there is a place. So I took comfort from that, from seeing that. Do you remember the first time you did stand up? I did stand up was in the summer of 1999, and I had um, I had I, I had spent the summer as an apprentice at the Williamstown Theater Festival, which is a very very well respected summer theater program. It's kind of where all the Broadway and Hollywood stars go for the summer and do these amazing shows. And that summer was. Was it was really really big summer because Gwyneth Paltrow won the Oscar for Shakespeare and Love um, in in March, and then like the next day announced that she was going to be spending her summer at Williamstown. So she was there. David Schwimmer was there in the height of uh, Friends fame. Um, all sorts of people. Uh, it was it was just everywhere you looked was was huge actors and and uh, you know I I was was able to join as one of about 90 young actors as apprentice. And you would spend your summer taking classes from, you know, Tony Award-winning actors and directors and learning all the stagecraft and all this and that. And then on the opposite days, you'd be working crew where you would maybe get assigned to run lights for a show. Or if you were lucky, you could audition and get to play bit parts and and, and extras and stuff in, in some of the plays. Um, so I was fortunate enough that I was cast in The Taming of the Shrew. Uh, and as a Cheers freak, it was starring and directed by Roger Reese. And oh. uh, and the, the leading lady was Beanie Newer. So oh, I had that. That was amazing, you know. But, uh, but of this huge opportunity to uh, apprentice at this thing, I was not... I was the only one of these 91 of us 
who didn't aspire to be a Broadway actor. I didn't, you know, it's not that, it, that the lessons were lost on me, but that's not what my, I wanted. I wanted to do stand-up. So I did this entire season up there because, uh, because Lewis Black was up there and he taught stand-up. And so I did the whole thing to do stand-up and get to take Lewis's class. And uh, so I did. And he did a showcase one night in the Black Box Theater. And it was for the best of the people in the class. And, you know, I was chosen. So that was my, technically my first stand-up was, was this thing. Uh, and, and, of course, it wasn't straight stand-up because we were, a theater program. So I had my own jokes, but I wore a sport coat and tie and I did the act in a Lewis Black classic, early Lewis Black fashion with the hand and that kind of stuff. So it, it went really well. And then um, about a month or so later, when that was all over, I actually went to a comedy club and used some of the jokes I had written. And then of course, you know, tanked <laughs> yeah. so uh but yeah summer of 99 it was the, the very first time and um and then you know lewis was great we became friendly but i moved to the city about a year later and like the trajectory was that's when he was really taking off you know from the daily show and, and the national tours and everything else so it's not like we were crossing paths in the clubs or anything we didn't i didn't see him probably for about 15 years until I started kind of into the Daily Show circles. And then we reconnected and, you know, he remembered me and we'd become, you know, friendly and, and, and had, you know, had drinks and, and hung out a little bit. And he's a great guy and still a huge influence on me. What's funny is because you would always host the show that I would do. Uh -huh. I've uh -huh. never heard your stand-up. Yeah, isn't that funny? That's, um, that, was a, that was actually a reason that I got into the audience warm-up because I always hosted, you know, I built that strength, that muscle of, of being the host and, uh, combined that with the, um, UCB, you know, and learning the improv, mm -hmm. I put those skills together and basically once, once, uh, I'd been hosting for quite a while, I mean, I was, I became the, I became the house MC at the New York Comedy Club for a spell. Okay. So every weekend, if I didn't have road work, I knew that I, you know, I would be hosting there. Um, when the Daily Show came along, um, they were looking for they needed a new substitute warm-up guy. They had the regular guy, but you know, they needed the backup, and they'd been trying a bunch of people, and nobody, they didn't like who they were seeing. Nothing was working out. And it became a big problem. And then my name was recommended because, you know, some writers and producers on the shows were also comics. And they knew that I did a good job as a host and that I was a likable guy who wasn't hard to work with. And so that's how I got the call. I didn't have a, an agent or a manager putting me up for a job at The Daily Show. It was literally just came from hosting again and again and again and building that muscle and being ready when the time came. And so the phone rang pretty much out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, the next week I had my shot and I, and I got it. It changed my life. I went to the Cosby show when uh, it was taping in New York. Godfrey was the, uh, the uh, really? guy. 
And then not the, not the Cosby show, the his other No, 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 no. The the one that he did in the late nineties. And Godfrey was the was the uh, audience uh-huh. warm up guy, and yeah. he was. And then I went to a, another late night show, and he was also the warm up guy. Uh-huh. So it's a it's a tough business to get in. It's a tough nut to crack. It is. It, it and it's a it's it's one of those things. It's almost completely who you know. You know, you have to because it's not a gig that you can get by having a producer of the show just go out and spend a night at Caroline's and a night at the Strip and watch a bunch of comedians. You can't you can't audition for the show like you would as an actor. You don't submit a packet. You have to know how to do it. So it's, you know, it's a calling all car situation. They, you know, they'll, they'll a new show opens up, you'll get a call because so-and-so works on the show and worked with you somewhere else. Or what would happen is like, once I was in at the Daily Show, you know, somebody would need a substitute on another show or something would open up. They would literally call the Daily Show and talk to a producer over there and, you know, who do you have that you could recommend? And I would get, you know, moved over there. So it's it's a very, you know, very difficult to get in. But once you're in and if you do a good job, it's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a nice, it's a nice gig to have for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and the, the funny thing is, and Godfrey is very respected. You know, he's a good, really good comic. And uh, he's done a lot of great stuff. And he originally was selected to be the warm-up guy for the nightly show with Larry Romo. Okay. And um, I had just, uh, you know, I'd done my run at the Daily Show. And then I was there at Colbert right up to the finale. And so, you know, the nightly show was coming into a place called Bear, same studio, same lots of people. So in my mind, I was like, well, I know I've, I've got to be in the conversation to right. be the warm-up guy. That year. So then I found out from, you know, from the executive producer who I was friendly with that, you know, Godfrey was going to be the guy. And it, and it made sense. You know, he's a great comic, and, and it's also, I mean, the nightly show was very, very much about, it was a black staff and, and, and black issues and stuff. And so to have an African-American warm-up guy just made sense. And of course, you know, uh, but I was invited to come in and be his backup, which is okay, better than nothing. You know, yeah. So he did the first, there, before the show went on the air, he, um, I think we had two or three nights of dry run shows with a live audience, you know, and um, he did the first night, and which was I think a Wednesday, and then I, and then he had a road gig, you know, had to go headline some club for the weekend, so he couldn't do the Thursday. So I was brought in on the Thursday, and um, he, you know, whatever he did, I don't, I don't know, but I went in and I did my thing on the Thursday, and I got the call that Sunday that they. The show basically bought him out of his contract and wanted to hire me. And so I, you know, I kind of stole the job away just by doing what I did, you know, didn't mean to, but it was, I became, the, that was my first time being coming the warm-up guy, not just a one. I was that show's warm-up dude. And that was always a big, you know, making that transition is kind of bumping from middle to headline. And, and, and 
knowing that the job wasn't mine, that it was already given to somebody, a comic that I respect, and then that they changed course because they saw what I do and how I do it, you know, that was such a, such a boast of confidence that I'll, I'll never forget it. And, and I, nothing but respect for Godfrey and what he does. Um, that was just a really cool moment in my career. Yeah, I had no idea. I just mentioned him because I was trying to remember the uh, yeah. openers that I've seen. When I went to Saturday Night Live, Keenan opens it. Yeah, yeah. SNL usually has just a, has a cast member come out and, and do some stuff. And there. Don Pardo used to do it. Uh huh. Before um, b- before that. Yeah. Um. And Eddie Brill used to do the the Late Show with uh, David Letterman, and Wally Collins was over at the. Who wants to be a millionaire? And there's a lot of a lot of I mean, a lot of comics. I mean, David Tell has done it, and <laughs> I've heard the stories. And, and a lot of comics have done it. And you know, you'll you'll get the gig because it's it's a great gig for a comedian. You know, most of these shows take late afternoon, so you don't have to wake up early. Right. You go, you do your thing. The show's done by about seven o'clock, and then you can go off and hit the clubs or or whatever. Um, so it's definitely a coveted job for, for comedians. And if you, and, you know, um, and if you can do it, it's, it, you know, it's a good, it's a good money. Yeah. I talked to, um, Marty Nadler. I don't know if you know who he is. He was, um, a writer for, uh, the Gary Marshall shows in the seventies and eighties, but uh-huh. he got the job because they saw him a catch a rising star in New York, um, yeah. uh, Penny Marshall and brought him out and, there was they needed somebody to doctor a script and he came in and he basically worked with uh Gary Marshall until he died, you know, mm-hmm. punching up scripts and he wrote episodes of shows and he was the also the audience warm up guy. Oh, that's cool. So he, you know, for everyone from the 75 to 85 almost. Yeah. And that's a different that's a totally different beast too doing it for sitcoms is mm. that's not anything I've ever done. I've done my milieu has been the late night shows uh, and, you know, game shows and, and stuff like that. And those guys who do for, um, you know, a taping of like friends would take, you know, like eight hours. And in between takes, in between breaks, that guy just has to be out there dancing and, and playing games. And, and it's a whole lot more work than anything I've ever done. Of course, it pays better. Um Mm-hmm. That's a, that's crazy. People can do that. I have I have nothing but respect for that. That is, you know, you can do it and do it well. You can you can really have a nice career doing that. Yeah, well, that's um, where I saw Godfrey with the um, yeah. Bill Cosby show uh, because the lights broke and uh-huh. and he was out of he was out of material. So he was going uh-huh. in the audience and asking if anybody ever did stand up. Or, or could tell jokes or did anything. And this is before I ever did stand-up in my life. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I can do impressions. So I start doing impressions. And then Bill Cosby walks out. And he's, oh, wow. and he's like, and I was I was doing Jackie Mason. And then he's like, can you do me? And I'm, I'm not going to do Jack, but you know, I'm not going to do Bill Cosby. Right. So I'm like, no. And he goes, he's like, I could try, but it's going to be really bad. And he's like, no, no, you do this. You go, blah. I'm like, blah. No shit. Yeah. And he's like, oh. and I went, Theo. And he and he started, then he was like, okay, okay. I think you know how to do it, Bill Cosby. And uh, then after the show, the, the producer's like, oh, we want to use that in a commercial here. 
sign this. So I signed in the give me a t-shirt. Cool. So that wow. was so like yeah, Bill Cosby, very nice to me. Same crowd. Same crowd in the morning. So the crowd in the morning sees three shows, and a lot of the morning crowd were people who came because they were going to take the test during the afternoon to try to be contestants, and then it's a fresh crowd in the afternoon. Hold the so, phone a second. Con- continue. Okay. So, uh, so I get out there. This, so this is my very first day, really, as a paid hired warm-up guy. It's for who wants to be a millionaire. So I get out there and I'm expecting to do about 15 minutes and then we're going to bring Meredith Vieira out and, and do the taping. And I'm out there and a half hour has eclipsed and uh, I'm still going. You know, I'm still doing crowd work. I'm still just, just shuffling along. And of course, you, that's a show where you had to be clean, so I had to be mm-hmm. weary of. For 45 minute mark, all of a sudden, crew members come out and start disassembling the stage. They're literally taking the chair, the, the seats and they, they've, they've pulled them back and they're going under there and they're working on wiring. And I'm like, well, that's a bad sign. After an hour, a stagehand comes out and gives me a bottle of water and is like, do you want to get a book of trivia and do that? I was like, yes, please. And I, I was out there for 90 minutes before we got to the taping. So 90 minutes with that audience, mm. then we got to the taping. Then I had to go out during each commercial break of the taping and entertain them. And then when the episode ends, I had to go out there again for that same audience and kill another 20 or 30 minutes in between episodes so Meredith could go have you know new costume, new new wardrobe, and all that kind of shit. I think for that for that crowd that night that day, I, I probably ended up over those three episodes. I, I think I did about five hours of of whatever with them. And I mean, talk about trial by fire. That gave me that that was another thing that gave me the confidence. I was like, oh, this opportunity comes up again to do warm up. I I, I you can't get any harder than that, you know. I actually, yeah, I actually went to the uh, millionaire to take the test. Did you? Yeah, I passed. I actually passed the test. I just never got a call back. You never got the call? No, I I was a phone a friend. Uh huh. And they called me and I answered the question. The person got it right, but I didn't get any money from that. <laughs> I never had good luck on trivia shows. I was on Cash Cab. Okay. And I, uh, I we were that was season two of Cash Cab. And uh, we ended up, it was a short cab ride. And so we ended up, I think it was me and my 
now wife and, and a buddy, and we were like, well, if we hit $1,000, we're going to keep it. Anything under a grand, we're going to go for it on that last double or nothing video thing. And I always do really well with trivia. So we had like $700. So we went for it and we got the damn thing wrong. So no money, but it still, it still pops up on syndication. And I still hear from people from time to time that they just saw me in cash cab. It was a cool experience for sure. Uh, would you, how'd you get your SAG card? Uh, I got my SAG, well, that wasn't SAG, but I got my SAG card, uh, I think from warm-up, I think there was, there are some gigs where you had to be, you know, had to be SAG, so I, I, I forget which show I was a must-join, and I was lucky because I got in right before they merged with AFTRA, and so it would have been like, if I didn't join then, and I, you know, joined for something else down the road, the it's like a, you know, it was like a thousand dollars to join then, and then now it's like I don't know three or five or something. So I got lucky. Uh, I think it was for a warm up gig. It might have. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. No, because I was doing research, so I went on your website. Uh huh. And it just says SAG after. So I was yeah. wondering what. You, and you did crew work. Is this true on what not to wear? What not to wear? I did warm up. Oh, you did warm up on what not to wear. Yeah, What Not to Wear was, um, that was a makeover show, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, they did one live episode. It was like an anniversary show or something. And um, they never had done a live audience show before. And it's not a show that's made for a live audience. It doesn't, you know, it was a makeover thing. And so, yeah, I did that. It was a clusterfuck, as I recall, because they had... It was another one where I was out there forever because it was a makeover. So they had to take, after the first segment, they had to take this woman back and, you know, a, a complete makeover takes time. The hair right. takes time and the makeup and everything. So I was out there. I remember they, that one went so long that audience members ended up having to leave before the taping was completed or they would miss like the last train back to Long Island or whatever, or Jersey. Yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that show. I mean, it's like, on your IMDb. Yeah. I'm on IMDb? I didn't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's a bunch of shows, and it says audience warm-up, but that one, it had crew yeah, member. Sure. That one just said crew. So I was like, yeah. what would you, you do? And then, okay. Yeah. No, I've never done crew anywhere, anything else. It's always audience warm-up. Okay. And um, when did you first work with Gilbert Gottfried? First work with Gilbert at Bananas down in uh, Hasbrook Heights. Okay. And I opened for him there. And then uh, we became friendly, actually, with the George Carlin Way thing. Gilbert did... Gilbert came to the street sign unveiling, and we did... uh, And then we did a big celebratory show that night at Caroline's. Um, And it was... It was myself, it was Gilbert, David Tell, Jim Norton. Um, oh my God, it was a huge lineup of great comics. It was a great night. And actually the show, the, the, the show was listed in Time Out New York as the number two comedy show of the year for live stand. Mm. It was amazing. And the uh, funny thing was Gilbert has this legendary set. And if somebody taped it and put it on YouTube, but then took it down. And, and if they're listening to this, on behalf of Gilbert, please put it back up because he wants to see it. But what happened was 
Um, he was up probably about seven. Colin Quinn hosted. Gilbert was up about seven in the night. And he started his set just like everybody else with, you know, every comic was what an honor it was to be on the show and how much George meant to them or something. And, of course, the audience always applauded that. But by the time seven, eight guys in, you know, what a great, you know, what an honor and right. blah, blah, blah. They didn't really applaud when he when he said it, you know. And, and so whatever his material for the night was, this is why Gilbert is an actual genius. Whatever his material for the night was, was gone. And from that moment, he took that cue from the audience as, as, oh, yeah, well, fuck George Carlin. And he did this blistering seven or eight minute set of how glad he was George Carlin was dead. The best day of his life was not when his children were born. It's when he found out George Carlin died and this and that. And I, I heard on good authority from the doctor that he suffered. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, 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 it didn't crush. It, it was either you're on board. That's the thing with Gilbert. When he goes on these rants and stuff, either you're on board or you're not. And if you're on board, it's a thing of beauty. And if you're not, it makes you uncomfortable. And, and you know, and, and and he'll just keep pushing when people are uncomfortable. He'll just keep pushing it, and the people who are loving it will love it. And so I was seated during his set I was in, in, between Kelly Carlin and George's brother. And, and they were both kind of like, eh, you know, they weren't really, they were pretty uncomfortable. Right. So it was tense at our table. But I mean, I watched the set when it was put up on YouTube and I'm like, this, it was brilliant. It was so funny. So good. And that was what, what Time Out New York, when they, they put the, you know, the top end of the year, top 10 shows and we were number two, they signaled, they, they singled Gilbert out because of that set. It was brilliant. So it was on YouTube. For some reason, the person took it down, and I know Gilbert wants to see it. So if anybody has it, it's great to see it again. Did you ever see on YouTube uh, Gilbert at the at the uh, Juggalos? I'm not sure. He that it was the, maybe the first or second annual you know Juggalo convention, yeah. and yeah. he starts to tell a story, and then they just go fuck whoever he was talking. I think it was Jay Leno, and the, and the audience was like, fuck Jay Leno. And he's like, yeah, fuck Jay Leno. And then he goes, you know what? Fuck Johnny Carson. And then he, like, and then he goes, that was this guy, Jack Parr. And then the audience is like, fuck Jack Parr. And he's like, yeah, fuck Jack. And then there was this guy, Steve Allen. And then they, he just named old comedians from like, yeah. sorry, he kept on going way back to the 30s and talking about, fuck them, they're pieces of shit. And it was, it was, Reminded me of that when you were telling the story. Uh, yeah, I'll have to look that up. Um, but yeah, but then, so, so uh, I kind of, you know, got to know, you don't get to know Gilbert, even to this day. I got to know his wife, mm. Dara, who's, who's his, she manages him and stuff, and she's a sweet person. And um, Dara actually grew up a couple towns away from where I grew up. Um, we didn't know each other, but, you know, we have that kinship of, of being from the same area. And so I've opened for, you know, I've opened for Gilbert here and there. And then we were just putting, starting to put together a tour of, of dates. We were supposed to do Caroline 
I think March 19th of this year was going to be the first one. And of course, that is all to put. But uh, ideally, um, when, you know, when the world comes back and comedy comes back, uh, I'll head out on the road and Gilbert and I will do some gigs together, which I'm very much looking forward to. That's awesome because I've seen George Carlin four times. Uh-huh. I've seen Don Rickles four times. Uh-huh. And I've seen Gilbert Gottfried four times. He's oh, yeah. the only one who can break the tie. That's right. He can break the tie. So yeah. I was going to go to uh, see him at in, uh, the place in Long Island. Uh, Governors? Governors. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, that was canceled. Yeah. <laughs> but the next time he's at go- – I've seen him four times at Governors. Uh, yeah. I live like – I live literally ten minutes away, so uh, so I'm gonna be there. So, all right. Well, then you'll get to see me actually do stand up. <laughs> yeah, that's what's funny. Is I've probably twenty times been on a bill yeah. with you, and I've don't I don't know what joke I don't know what joke you tell. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. But, and I, and the irony is, I'm actually uh, I'm actually putting out right. You know, this coming month, my third full-length stand-up yes. album. Yes, I'm gonna. Okay. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get yeah. the first one and li- and listen to it because I, you know, yeah. <laughs> gotta know what you talk about. Check it out. Well, funny thing is, the first one you actually, I think, it'll be a little bit of memory lane because my my hosting, I still would work in some of my material. You might not have recognized it as material, but I would work in it. So my first album was after I'd been doing comedy about 10 years. And uh, I recorded that over the course of two nights at Broadway Comedy, or yeah, Broadway Comedy Club. And uh, and so that is kind of like a, a compilation of material from the time when you knew me, where I was able okay. to put it up. And then, uh, and then the second one was from a few years ago. That one was, a, was supposed to be filmed. It was going to be a Netflix. You know, my manager, we were going to sell it to Netflix and the video, the, the crew, the videographer that I hired, who I'd worked with before, he fucked it up and it was an amazing night and he was an idiot and uh, the light was too hot. So I was oversaturated. So mm-hmm. everything was kind of whited out. And that's one of the things you can't fix. So we filmed three sets that night and uh, the first one was basically, I mean, what was going to be my special. We weren't even going to need anything else. And this guy didn't check between the sets to, to check the footage. Like he could have caught it. Right. We could have, you know, he didn't do that. He was more concerned. He was more concerned about stepping out to smoke another joint to have a good time during the show. So the, the, the all, all the work and all the stuff to get, to get the, the Netflix special was ruined. But the, the second show, the, the, the show was so good and I wanted the material was ready to be released. So I just said, well, the hell with it. We're going to put it out just as an album. And, uh, I put it out with some images in the cover art. You can actually see the, you know, a film strip images of how whited out I was. And so it was called the unintentionally white album. So that Ooh. was the second one. And then this third one is coming out at the end of June. And, uh, that one is called Western Mass Hall, and that's uh, it's kind of a love letter to Western Massachusetts, where I grew up. And there was there was this one club where I used to never I never performed. I mean, it was a, a legendary club. It was the Hoofy Lao 
in Chicopee, Massachusetts. And it was this great, like great Asian Chinese restaurant with, you know, great food. I mean, we would go there as kids. We would eat there and uh, it had a comedy club. So I was, I wanted to be a comic since I'm six. So I was always seeing the posters and seeing who's coming and, you know, wishing I could go. And then once I was in high school, I was old enough to actually go. I would go and see some shows there. It was like the only comedy club I knew of. You know, and uh, I never got to perform there until 2017. I got to go in the only time I ever performed at this club. I, I went in as a headliner. I did one show. Uh, it was a it was a sold out show. The audience, it, you know, went crazy when they heard that I was from Lee from Western Massachusetts. I did my act, but there's a lot of it's very you know, there's a lot of local references. There's a lot of crowd work. It's not just straight stand up. There's some some material that you know is on one or the other earlier albums, mm-hmm. but has grown and changed. And uh, it was such a great great night, and it was taped. I recorded it, but just because I record everything, and I was kind of bummed that it was not. I'm like, what am I ever going to do with this? Like, it gave me the idea that I wanted to do a podcast or something with other comedians where they bring on, like, that legendary set, you know, mm. that just is somewhere in a drawer and a tape and we discuss it. And that never happened. But um, the, the club, you know, after that set, you know, the, the manager and stuff was talking about bringing me in and doing full weekends and blah, blah, blah. And then the restaurant itself closed. It was it had been open for fifty three years and the family it was a family restaurant and they just closed the damn place. Mm. So it was it was this whole kind of dream come true that I finally got to headline this hometown club. I got to and it went perfect and everything else. And it was a once in a lifetime. It'll never happen again. The place is closed. And uh I decided that I'm going to release it. I'm going to put it out as an album. Uh, just, you know, almost a basement tapes type thing. You know, yeah. like it's like I kept in the sounds of the, the ambiance. You can hear the, the the glasses and you can hear people's plates and you can hear that kind of stuff. And it's just to be there. And I'm proud of it. I'm just excited about it. So, it's like your day they left or died. The, yeah. The almost, play, yeah. 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 It's there. And, and, you know, I mean, I put it out for, for myself because I didn't want it to be just another tape in a drawer somewhere and and it, and it holds up it's really funny I'm really proud of it um, so it's you know but it, it's it's my yeah my third full length stand up album so I'm pretty excited about it yeah it would be too I uh, I had a different the first time I did stand up was at Governor's and uh, I signed up and when I got there the night the host not the host, the uh, guy who taught the comedy class was like, well, you can go on, but these people just took an intensive 10-week comedy class, so I don't know how well you're going to do. And yeah. I killed, and everybody from the, from his class bombed. <laughs> so the, the host was uh, Jeff Cole. Yeah, sure. And he said, listen, I'm doing a gig at the New York Comedy Club. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me see if I can get you on. I'm like, okay. And uh, so I went, and that was like the next weekend, and it was like it was two thousand and two, and uh-huh. Jim Norton was on, Jim Gaffigan was on, yep. um, and uh, Tony Rock, yeah, and a bunch of other people, and 
I don't. I told a joke because this is American Idol the second year about yeah. uh, what's his name, uh, Ruben Stoddard, and yeah. I said, you know, they're really surprised that this guy, you know, this guy is so fat, you know, he's going to win the contest. I'm like, shouldn't have been surprised. He was named after a sandwich. And you know, Tony Rock came out and saw me after the show, and he's like, "Oh, you're you know, you're funny. How long have you been doing this?" I'm like, "Well, this is my second time." And he's like, "Oh, yeah. you're you're good." And then a couple of months later, uh, Chris Chris Rock's hosting the MTV Movie uh, Video Awards, and he's oh. like, "Oh, Ruben Stoddard's here. Ruben, yeah. People are so like, uh, people are so uh, uh, um, curious about you know how fat you are. Well, come on, Edward's been named after a sandwich." Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, that's crazy. And I know Chris Rock wasn't there, but his brother was, and I'm sure he didn't picture it as. Yeah, this is was. I'm sure he said, "Oh, this is this guy's second time." All right, forget. <laughs> yeah, I would. I uh, that sounds like a pretty straight up. Yeah, but who cares? Know. Or I mean, no, could, no, who cares? The thing is, like, it's like with stuff like that. This is why I actually don't watch a lot of stand up. I don't watch my contemporaries often, and and. Um, because my fear is, is, you know, parallel thought. You know, yes. It's not, that's not the hardest joke in the world to come up with. No. And, and, and the thing is, Tony Rock, I'm, I'm sure, was writing for his brother when he was on, you know, doing these TV He was. His name was and in I'm the credits. Sure, and yeah. the thing is, like, two months later, that pops up in your mind, and you can never be sure if you're if you're a guy who's watching other comics, you can't be sure if that's 100 percent yours or if it's in your mind because you heard it somewhere. You know, right. like like that was the thing with why Robin Williams got that label as being like a joke thief so much because his mind he was just working on such a level that he was a sponge and things come out without a filter, which is what made him a genius. But comics were like, yeah, that was my joke, and blah, blah, blah. So we got to a point, I remember reading in one book, where comics knew all they needed to do was call his manager and say, last night he did this joke, and it was mine, and it was a free $50 check. Like, it was easy money, you know? Was that, so I heard it was more than that, but yeah. Up. Yeah, what, it might have been more. Um, and then, you know, I, I've, I've, I've had stuff flat out stolen. I remember one time at Broadway Comedy Club, um, you remember Linda, Linda Cork? She's passed on, but she was managing the club, oh. and um, she's a really sweet lady. I never and, met any uh, managers, I don't think. Oh, uh, okay. So one night, I, I wasn't on, and she was, I think her niece or someone was a waitress, and so it, 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 she didn't find out till the next day. They were driving in, and uh, the waitress says to her, she goes, is it common for comics to do each other's material? When when the other one isn't there, and and Linda's like, no, that's that's called Josie, and she says, well, this this comic came in and asked if Kevin Bartini was going to be there, and I said, no, he's not in the lineup, and he he did this entire like this five minute routine. Wow. We never found out who it was. We never, you know, they they told me it's probably that happened, and it was like I was kind of done with that routine anyway. So I took it as a compliment, but that one was a straight up being stolen from but then there was another one where um i have a routine it's on one of my albums and it's definitely something i've done in almost every headlining set i've ever done and it's kind of one of my closers and uh part of it is about using a a uh 
rest when you jerk off, right? Mm. And uh, they ended up doing that on the league where the guy puts the pedometer on. And so right. I, you know, I can't say that for certain that that was just straight up stolen from me, but it's like. Did you research like who was the writers for the league? I didn't, I, no, because I'm not a, I'm not bitter or anything else. What are you going to do? You right. know, uh, again, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, it's not a huge leap when you think about this device, what it, you know, what its right. function is to do. So I couldn't, but, the, but what I was glad was that it was on an album that I'd already had out for five or six years. What was funny was like how many people tweeted me that night, you know, right away. It's like, hey, they're doing your, your thing. So all I can do is either you, you chalk up the total parallel thinking or you just uh, you just be like, well, I respect the show. And somebody, if there's a writer or something there on there that respects me enough to, to, to think that was funny enough to take, uh, you know, God bless them. I'll take it as a compliment. But, you know, that kind of stuff happens. But that's exactly why the biggest change when I became a comic, it's like Field of Dreams. You know, once you cross that, that warning track into the uh, cornfields, you don't come back. So, like, I I went from being a, a you know, what, what are now, like, comedy nerds, huge fans, to it was 180. Like, I don't really, I don't watch stand-up anymore. I don't follow it because because I... I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to be afraid of, of is this thought, you know, that paranoia, is this thought really mine? Especially because I do so much crowd work. Is this really mm-hmm. I'm coming up with this or am I regurgitating something that I heard Ian do? Um, and, and the same, or this is the other thing that happens is you get to the point where you're guessing the punchline ahead or you're, or you're, uh, you're, you, you're jealous that you didn't come up with something. So it, it really changes the game moving from a fan to a actual professional. Mm. I had a bit that I wrote, but I about, uh, basically when you, when things that people say when you die and it was uh-huh. like, and then George Carlin, his last special, did 15 minutes and he did like a couple of things that were very close. So I just never, yeah. never performed it. Yeah. I just, yeah. So, I'm like, it's not going to be as good ever. Yeah. So what the hell's, and people just say I stole it from him. So it's not worth doing. Right. Right. Yeah. You're, yeah. Yeah. You're, you'd be considered derivative at best. You don't want that. You know, like I, 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 I mean, I still watch the, the, the stand-ups that I do watch with people are the ones who are really different from me. I can kind of get into, you know, to that. Like, like, like I'll watch Chappelle. I was going to say Dave Chappelle. You can't yeah, think I'll of watch. his ideas and go, oh yeah, I had that. Yeah. Yeah. No, those, those kind of guys and I can enjoy it. There's no, there's no, there's no professional jealousy. There's nothing. You just enjoy it for what it right. is. Right. If Mitch Hedberg was still alive, you couldn't, you wouldn't be like yeah. thinking like, yeah. oh yeah, I could have thought that. Yeah. 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 I got to meet Mitch once. That was, that was cool. Not long before he died, he was so great. Uh, I, you know, he just—I remember—he came into stand-up New York with Eddie Brill because he was doing Letterman. So I just got to shake his hand, got to meet him. You know, it's funny thinking back now. The guys like him—I I met Robert Schimmel once just before he died. Yeah, I saw him perform. But... Yeah, I saw him. He came in and did a, at Comics and did a, a set, and he was awesome to hang out with backstage. And he was really funny, but he was really frail and sickly. Of course, then he died in a car accident. I mean, I knew Patrice O'Neill and I mm. knew Greg Duraldo, you know, those guys. And now 
Nick Henley I knew very well. Who? You know, I mean, Nick Henley. Okay. He's a, he was a really funny Southern comedian, really good storyteller. And uh, he died uh, a couple of months ago. I don't know if it was COVID or not, but it was right, you know, at the beginning of all of this. He passed away. He was a still young, youngish guy. Very, very funny. Definitely worth looking up. Okay. No, I, I knew the name. I just couldn't hear what you were saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he was great. He was actually supposed to be one of the um, one of the original uh, blue collar comedy guys. Okay. But the story goes that. Uh, Jeff Boxworthy's wife didn't like him for some reason. So Ooh. he wasn't on it. And uh, remember they had, the, it was the three of them and then the one boring dude, Bill Engvall. Mm. He, he, was, he was a replacement that it should have gone to Dick. I'm waiting to but, hear you might have Corona if. Yeah, right? <laughs> if you can't smell or taste food, <laughs> there's a good chance you got Corona. Right, sorry. But, if uh, your lungs are melting in your chest, you might have, if you are on a ventilator. <laughs> if you think drinking bleach is a good alternative. If you can only see your loved ones through your tablet and you are on a ventilator, you might have called. I, I, I'm, see, that's, that's two of the reasons, the reason I stopped doing stand-up is because it was just, I had a job, and yeah. I couldn't stay up all night, and then do yeah. a job. Mm-hmm. And it was too many times that, like, I did good, and they would have me back, and then they, I'd have to bring 20 people. Yep. So, yeah. and one time there was a comedy contest, and Max Alexander, who's no longer with us, did you ever meet him? Yeah, Max, I knew Max. He, uh, he was one of the judges, uh-huh. and it was audience, and it was judges. So there yep. were two winners. And this yep. one guy brought his whole fraternity down, yep. and I had the ten people that were required. So I had ten, yep. he had like a whole bunch. And so he won because it was the crowd part, but right. I, I won the three comedians who were judging. So I got one night and uh, as like a middle, and he um, got and the guy who had brought his whole fraternity got like a week. So I'm like, I, I can't, I don't have that many friends, right? And then you know they're they're like, well, we we heard you do these jokes last, and it's like, all right, well, yeah, it's a new audience this time. You dope. <laughs> no, you're not new. I need you, they just need your money. Yeah. Oh no. I yeah. Totally. Totally. Right. I mean, I, I never ever could have done that, like the, the bringers and stuff like because I moved to New York City. I didn't know anybody. So I was fortunate that I I got into the club system working like the door at Stand Up New York. And then right, hold on one second. OK, so I got into the club system by working the door at Stand Up New York. And then from there they moved me into a position of producing shows and producing bringer shows. And um, otherwise I never would have been able to do it. But what I, where I became successful on that was it was legit. Like it wasn't just, you know, it used to be just, yeah, bring your friends and nothing happens and blah, blah, blah. Like I came up with one, we did a contest where 
we flew people to Los Angeles, the winners, and they got to play at the Hollywood Improv. And I mean, one of the one of the winners was um, Adam. Uh, is he now Adam Hunter? He's changed his name a couple of times, but he went out there. He actually kind of got discovered, started getting work out there, and now he lives out in Los Angeles. He's a big and, and is a big national headliner and stuff like mm. that. We we would always I would always come up with ideas like if you have to you have to bring audience, let's get a trip out of it. Let's get something. Let's get blah blah blah. And, and it wasn't because uh, yeah, I never liked that idea that somebody could just come in and steal the whole thing. It's like you know you gotta do something different, and you gotta. I mean, it's a necessary evil in in the industry because you need an audience. The club needs an audience, and if if so, and, and and the the new Jack comics just don't have the chops yet, so the club is giving up something having them on the stage when they could just as easily have any one of a thousand seasoned comics that'll do a spot for twenty bucks. It's like what can you bring? We can put David Tell's name on the list, and he'll bring audience on his own with his name. If you don't have that, you don't, you know, it's a necessary evil. So it's like, how do we make it better? How do we change the game? So I was actually, you know, I did it for a while and I was, I was, I was proud to be able to do things that were different. And I meant, you know, and and it's funny now because so many comics who have established careers and stuff got their start on those shows. Michelle Buteau, um, Jesus, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a good amount of them that, you know, actually got, Things we would legitimately take money that we made from bringer shows and hire real agents and managers to come in. You know, Roger Paul and Jason Steinberg, people like that, and then they would find clients off of it. So that seemed to be a little bit more legit than than some of those people, which which is, I think, why I was successful. Yeah, it was it was after after you were gone, I left definitely. You went to the West Coast. No, no. I, that's I what I was. New York City. That's uh, what I was told. I just stopped doing. I just stopped doing it. I just. I. I. I got to a point again. It, it was the, the one benefit, other than the you know, that it was it did pay my 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 bills, but um, you would you would be able to trade spots with other producers, right? And so yeah, you can do a spot of mine. I'll do, you know. So it got me more spots, but. <laughs> I got to a point, it was more out of pride than anything. It got to a point where the fact that I was a producer, right, it was expected that I would do trade spots. So I would I would do, you know, I would put somebody in my show, and then I would go do their show. I would have a sold-out show. They would have 20 people. Um, and then they would have their friends or other comics just booked on the show just because they're comics. And they weren't as good as me. They weren't. Uh, you know, I, I would do better and whatnot, and they would keep having their friends come back. And the only time I would ever get on the show was if I did a trade. So I kind of got a little bit bitter about it. So I, you know, that's why I gave all that up. I was like, no, I want my spots because I've earned them because I'm good, not just because putting me on will get you a spot on a another thing. So no, I never moved away. I just I just stopped doing it. Oh, because at one time I you weren't there, and I said, "Where where uh-huh. Kevin go?" And they're like, "Oh, he he went to L.A." I'm like, "Oh, good for him." Oh no, nope. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, because I did You know, I worked with Aaron Haber for a while. 
And then I can't remember her name. It was the club that's on 77th Street, sec, the comic and second. Yeah, that's a comic strip. Uh, it was a. Uh, Gladys? No. I, I oh, Wait, I did work with Gladys once. Um, no, it was a blonde woman. She was maybe. I don't And she was Catholic and she was from Boston. And we talk about how the guy that married her was the priest that was involved in the whole Boston sex mm. thing, Father Gagan. And she, no, I have no idea who that is. Oh, okay. She, um, yeah. I mean, the, there's so many, there's so many comics and produce shows and stuff like that. It's hard to keep track. I mean, I remember, I, I remember the names when I see them on the, like, Laurie Kilmartin, I remember. Sure. And uh, the another woman who I've seen, I see her name. I'm like, oh yeah, I did stand up with her. I yeah. did stand up with. Was on uh, Last Comic Standing. Ah. Uh, and I was like, oh yeah, okay, I know that person. Yeah. Did you ever? You're not talking about Amy Schumer. No, 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 no. I could. I know who Amy Schumer is. No, yeah, she right. was little, little, little blonde woman. She had a thick Boston accent. Oh, Sue Costello. No. I know who she is too. Um, <laughs> no. I'm not sure. I'm All right. Gonna, All right. Forget. I'm on, on that, I have no idea. All right, but um, and it was like four in the afternoon. Really? And there was like seven people, and I was like, yeah. And I brought all seven, and it was yeah, like, yeah. and I felt bad for them. And it was like, yeah, okay. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Of course, you, you do. And that was the other thing we always on my show. We always had good headliners closing the show too so at the end of the night at least if the show wasn't great at least people got you know got to have somebody really solid that that was a good way of making connections with other comics too you know yeah having really strong ones the thing i'm most proud of like i didn't do anything but when i was in high school i sold a joke to rodney dangerfield like wow. I, I wrote him a letter and i wrote like and it, it was like I wrote like a hundred jokes uh-huh. and I wrote him a letter and I got a check for $50 and he just circled one joke. Wow. And it was like, I didn't do, was it? And I, I, even when I was young, I didn't do well with women. My mother gave birth to me cesarean. I never even came out of a vagina. Not bad. And then the, the best part of it is I, I wrote to him. I said, I want to be a comedian. And he's like, you know, even though I bought it, you could still use it. So I'm like, okay, that's great. But then somebody called me and they said they were watching Dr. Katz and he used it as a joke. Wow. On Dr. Katz. That's like the that's like the biggest thing. Like, hey, I sold a joke to Rodney and he uh and he used it on a TV show. Yeah. So that amazing. you know, that's just, and even the even the Chris Rock story is something that I have a lot of pride in that. Of course. So it was sure. good enough for him to say. Yeah, of course. It's it's those things. Um, are you know, comedy and stand up? I think, like, I certainly I got into it with visions of you know being the next whatever the, the next big thing, and then that. And, and it's like, what is, how do you define making it? Is is you know, is it, I haven't made it until I've had HBO specials and sold out you know, every theater in the country? Well, that's not realistic because at any one time, there's only about four or five comics at those levels and there's Mm -hmm. so many others. It's like, is making it 
you know, making a living, getting to headline clubs, having not had a day job since 2002. That's what I would consider, thing, that's know? what I would consider making it. Yeah, and then, the, um, and, but then the other thing is just, the, the thing nobody can take away from me is, is, or from you, is like when the legitimate legends, when the most respected people in the industry give you respect, the fact that, you know, John Stewart mm, yeah. saw what I did, hired me, and then has hired me on every TV show, every talk show he's produced. That's yeah. a vote of confidence that you don't get, that you can't take away, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, the, yeah. the nice things that one night at New York Comedy Club when um, I got off stage, I was hosting, and I came out, and uh, the manager was standing there with with uh, Jim Gaffigan, who wanted to stick stick around after his spot um, and tell Gina, the manager, how much he appreciated what I was doing up there and that I was, you know, I was so easy to follow and I warmed it up and all that, you know, like I got this great compliment from comics that I really respected. And I'm like, well, that's, that's the stuff that matters. Not everybody gets to turn into the millionaire. Not everybody gets the sitcom or the, the this and the that. And there's so much in this industry that you can't control, you know, no. you can't control the tastes uh, and, and the, of, of the industry of what's hot of, you know, right. Like I have no control that they're into youth right now. I have no control that they're into racial diversity and things like that, that I just, that's not me. I there's nothing I can do about it. Well, so, you, you were youthful at one time. Yeah, but you know what? When I was youth, when I was youthful, they were into forty-year-old dudes. When I was when I was in my twenties, the industry was hot for you know Geraldo, for Patrice, for all mm. those guys, for Attell, for Louis Black. Like right. they were the big things. And then no no sooner did I hit my late thirties, early forties, and it's you know it's all about youth. It's you know Pete Davidson and 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 the the youth that uh, they're into, and then. You know, and then and I'm, not, I'm certainly not bitter about it. I mean, you have no control over that, so you have to you have to just make your own way and find ways in this industry of diversifying so that you can make a living, so that you can do what you want to do, and uh, and and just hopefully you get the you know you get the respect of the people you respect. You know, Gilbert, another one likes me. That's great. That, that's great. I mean, uh, yeah. I tried to I tried to book him for the show. I, I texted uh, Dara and. She never even got yeah. back to me. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's okay. It's worth a try. Yeah, you know, keep you know, keep at it. Because I just know. want to ask Gilbert about Saturday Night Live, which he never wants to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was only there for like a year, and it wasn't great. He, uh, he, he was funny. He was yeah. funny, and that's what I want to tell him that. Like, I know it's maybe it's a shtick that he talks about how bad he. They did put him in, in as a corpse. That is true. But yeah. he might have been—he might have headlined ten sketches, but he killed in all ten sketches. Oh yeah. So there, there's two podcasts based on the sixth season of Live because it's legendary for how bad it is. Right. And, right. And both of them are like that sketch was really funny, and it was just a Gilbert and this guy Ferris Butler. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know him, but um, they wrote them. They wrote together, and yeah. the sketches were funny. And. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you were on a bad season, but you weren't bad, right? Uh, even right. though, even though he's got a, even though he's got such a you know, big career and he's a you know very famous, I just wanted to tell him that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, next time you see him, uh, see him live, you can come backstage, find the opener, and you can tell him in person. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, sure. yeah. I met George Carlin. By, I met George Carlin, by the way. Did you? Yeah. No kidding. At a Mets game. Wow. Um, it was right after Clemens hit Piazza in the head in the 2000 uh, World Series. This was 2001. Uh, Piazza hit, takes him deep, and uh, I'm at the I'm at the uh, hot dog counter. And all of a sudden, I hear he did it. He hit a home run off the bastard. And I'm like, that voice has got to be one guy. That's, yeah. George, that's George Carlin. So uh, I turn around, and it's George Carlin, and he's wearing a green Mets hat, the, uh, the uh, St. Patrick's Day Mets hat, yeah. uh, green Mets sweat, sweatshirt, sweatpants, and a jacket. And yeah. he, he he's like, you know, try, trying to give me a high five because I'm standing right in front of him. And I'm oh like, you're George Carlin. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like... Like have your autograph. He's like, okay. And I was like, anybody have a pen? Nobody had a nobody had a pen. And I was like, uh, and all I had was I, I was gonna give him a dollar bill. Yeah. And he's like, you know, if if, if I sign this, you can't use it. And I'm like, that that's okay. I'll, I have more. Yeah, you know, when you sign it, it's worth more than a dollar. Do you have a signed dollar bill from him? No, I didn't have the pen. Oh, because you couldn't get the pen. Uh, so he's like, what if I rub it? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, because I'll remember which one is. That one, yeah. Yeah. and then he then he laughed and went back to his seat. But that's awesome. But you know, somebody did do that to me. What uh, you said, uh, Gaffigan did to you. Uh, I went to LA once just to try, just to say I did stand up in LA, and I got an open mic night. And uh, after the show, I had a forty-five minute conversation. He did not have to do this with Drew Carey. No shit. And he was like, you know, you should stick with it. I'm like, really? I'm like, he's like, yeah. I wasn't. I was like thirty-seven. When I did the Tonight Show, because awesome. he's like sixty-five now. Yeah. So yeah, he was like he was already in his mid-forties, and he's like, "Yeah, you never know." And I'm like, mm -hmm. "I'm like, thank you." He's very nice. <laughs> Brian Posehn followed me. And I got a picture with him. And pitched some jokes or something, or asked him to look at some jokes, and then came back the next night and. He right. actually marked the whole thing up in red pen. I didn't hear what something happened. Your cell phone went out oh. or something. Oh, I, I, I think George Harlan is part of Drew Carey's origin story, right? I think Drew Carey wrote some jokes and hadn't done stand-up or brought them to, like, a comedy club where George was playing and asked him to look at it. And right. the next night came back and, and Carlin had done that and marked everything. I'm pretty sure those two those two guys intersect that way. Yeah, I think I'm so. Almost sure. I know Louis yeah. C.K. also. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I think I've heard that story. But I've heard a story with George Carlin and, and a lot of comedians. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was very, very... Very gracious, very nice. Um, Lewis Black has one where he just got a voice message out of the blue from George Carlin. They hadn't met, but it was, you know, just he'd seen what he was doing and wanted to be encouraging. And um, and then the other good one was uh, was Tom Cotter, who is now a big comedy star. Um, but he was just starting out or whatever, and he sent a letter George and uh, I think he, he I, I think he 
he asked him to uh, recommend him to the comic strip, I do believe. Okay. And so one day Tom Cotter gets a phone call from Lucian, who is the booker uh, who's since passed, and, and, and calls him up. He goes, why, why do I have George Carlin calling me and saying I need to check you out? You know, but so he actually did. He just called the club and said, "Give this, give this kid a try," and that's how that's how Cotter got got into the the comic strip. Like, yeah, there's, there's George did a lot of that stuff. I that was a nice thing when I was working on that campaign was uh, I had access to his friends, his childhood friends, and then you know, comics were always giving me those stories and stuff, and he was a genuinely good guy, you know, for all his, his troubles and, and self, you know, demons with, with drugs and alcohol and, and, and troubles with the, with the, the law from, you know, uh, the seven dead, uh, dirty words, yeah. or whatever. He was just a genuinely nice dude. Like nobody was ever like, Oh yeah, he was a total dick. Other than that priest, nobody <laughs> thought he was a dick. Everybody really liked him. So well, that made it, that made it a nice thing too, knowing I was doing something nice for somebody who, deserved it beyond just being a genius. Right. Person. His persona of not caring and not giving a shit it yeah. was totally not him. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's funny is speaking of doing it for somebody who's a good person, so this is uh, the, 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 the we, we basically we got the street sign hung in October of 20... 2015, and um, the nightly show we started taping in the following January. So it was only two and a half months later. Okay, so in that time between hanging the street sign and and the, the nightly show starting, after the the street sign was hung and whatnot, there was during those last weeks to promote the big show and everything else, I did another round of interviews and I was all over the place. And uh, I was asked in the, I know it was in the New York Times asked me and some others, well, now this is over, is there any other comic who you would do this for? Like who you would, would you know, would spend all this time and think would deserve um street sign because also you should point out George is the only the first and so far only stand up comic in New York City to get a street name mm. so um, this is just how dated it was but uh, uh, I said and I'm on record in the times the same I said the only other one I would consider would be Bill Cosby no. and I would try to get the street in Brooklyn where his the exterior of the Cosby house you know I'm like no. that's the only one I could think of so I was in the press in, in that October, saying, yeah, if I were to do it again, I'd get a street team up Bill Cosby. Everything went so far to shit for Bill Cosby in that two-and-a-half-month period that the, the second night of the nightly show was the whole thing was about Bill Cosby and was Larry taking him down and kicking, you know, just about everything that's happened and, and what a disgrace and this and that. So we're... We're watching. I'm, I'm standing backstage during the taping next to a monitor, and I'm standing next to to uh, John Stewart. John was the exec, one of the producers on the show, and so he was there for that first week. <laughs> and um, we're watching the tape. We're watching this, and we're watching all that Larry's saying. And I, I, 
you know, during a commercial break or something, I, I said to John, I'm like, I go, I'm like, you know, just two months ago, I'm in the New York Times saying that if I were to do this over again, I'd get a street named after John, after uh, uh, Bill Cosby. And John's story's like, well, this is all your fault, then. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing how quickly his downfall really came. You know, that there was no whisper of that in, mm. in October. And by January, he was just this huge pariah. Crazy. I, w- I was just thinking when you would, George uh, Groucho Marx. Uh-huh. Would be somebody. Yeah, Groucho would be somebody. He, he grew up in the East Eighties, um, and I know there was there was a campaign for a while to save the house that the Marx Brothers grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, he would be. I mean, yeah, if you wanted to go back to the old school people, I mean, well, there would be plenty of them. Yeah. I, I live. I mean, I, I work in Richmond Hill High School, and uh-huh. uh, basically couple blocks away is a bar where where Rodney Dangerfield lived uh, the first 10 years of his life. Uh-huh. So, you know, that street. That's worth trying. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm just saying, I'm just, yeah. no, I was just thinking of New York comedians. Right. Well, Gilda Radner has one, but she's not a stand-up, but they named a street for her. In New York? Yeah, down in the village somewhere. Okay. Yeah. Because um, she lived in the Dakota. Huh? She lived in the Dakota. Oh, did she live in the Dakota too? Yeah. She she lived. Uh, she was right there. It was like maybe three doors down. Wow, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, there's other people. I'm sure that, that it, it's an uphill climb getting it done. But uh, if somebody wanted to put in the time, well, the one thing is you have to be dead. That's one of the rules. Yeah, one of the rules. Person, other than you know, of course, the Yankees got that change from Mariano Rivera. They, you know, they sidestep that, but the person has to be oh, dead. Tom Seaver too. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, um, then the thing is you have to, you have to start with the, the community board and you have to, you have to display. It's not just that the person was famous or whatever for what they did. It, it's that they contributed to the neighborhood. Like that's the big part. Mm. So, so that's why I spent so much time talking to Carlin's friends and people he grew up with and being able to make the case that not only was he a genius and world famous and, and beloved in, in the top of his field, but like the fact that he maintained these friendships, the fact that like he had a, a, a friend who was kind of, who was hurt in Vietnam and he basically, you know, covered that guy's bills for the rest of his life. He had, he used to do this thing anytime he was playing out on, uh, Long Island and the um, what's that big venue? The place that's in the round. That's uh, a, oh Westbury Music Fair. Westbury, you know he would have free tickets for all of his old neighbors, and they would come. People would come back from Florida or from wherever they had moved, and they would come and see him, and end up having these de facto reunions. So all of these people who moved away, that was their chance that they would reconnect with old friends or whatever at George's thing. So that, that was, that was the selling point of what he actually, you know, beyond just putting it on the map in his art, um, what, what he was, she would have to. So the thing was like with a, with a Groucho Marx, I mean, being able to show that a hundred years later makes it tougher. Um, you know, or people like that, or, or the fact, you know, like with with, uh, Rodney Dangerfield that he lived there till he was 10. Right. Makes it a tough thing. Oh no, I wasn't. 
Yeah. No, no, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just thinking of famous uh, New York City comedians. Right. right. I mean, you could put for Sylvester Stallone a uh, statue of him in, in, in Philadelphia. Right. Of course. <laughs> oh, as an Italian-American, should they get rid of uh, Chef Boyardee? <laughs> He's an Italian stereotype that we are good cooks, and I stand behind that. <laughs> as an Italian who can cook, uh, I'm fine with Chef Boyardee. Okay, and should Dan Castellaneta stop voicing uh, Krusty the Clown? Man. Because Krusty the Clown's Jewish. He is. From, here's the thing, yeah, because as we're recording this, this was in the news yesterday. Yes. The white actors will no longer do any characters. So that means Dr. Hibbert is going to change. Right. That was Castellaneta, I think? Or no, that's Harry Shearer. That's Harry Shearer. Can't do that. You know, obviously... Carl. Yeah. The problem is, is with the Simpsons, now, if they want to be true to this, they have to recast Homer, Bart, Lisa, everybody else. Because they're yellow? Using using only actors that are jaundiced. (laughs) Nobody's yellow unless you have kidney failure. So that's going to make things tough. You know, it's uh, it's a crazy time we, but, we live right. in. Right. It, it's weird because that show was started and they said, okay, you two guys, Hank Azaria and yep. Harry Shearer, you be everybody else. Yep. Yep. So they did. Those aren't stereotypical voices they're doing. No. No. So now they're like, oh, you, you can't be everybody else. It's ridiculous. I mean, I Bar- Bart's a woman. Week. Bart's a woman. Right. Yep. That's right. You're right. Um, I put a post up last week on Facebook when it was about uh, taking the guns away from Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam. And what I said in that post pretty much stands for The Simpsons as well, which what I said was, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Yosemite Sam, Elmer Fudd, all of those characters died when their original voice actor died. I read that post, yes. Yeah. No. Like everything else from then on is like a pale comparison. It's not the same thing, so I, I don't care. I have that kind of feeling now with The Simpsons. It's like I, I I'm not a person who says you know anything after season ten is crap. I mean, I still I watch it every week. It. I still I don't I, I really don't watch it anymore. But I, I would say at least up to probably close to season twenty, even their bad episodes were still damn good. Mm. Um, I, I, it's not the same show that it used to be. It's, it's no way. You can't change history. You can't change those first, you know, those first brilliant seasons. Nothing will ever change that. It's set in stone and, and we're good to go. So from here on out, it's kind of irrelevant to me who I'm not going to lose sleep if, you know, Castellana is still making a million episode or whatever. They're still bazillionaires. If they want to keep running this show, I, I have no illusions that when I'm 60 years old, 70 years old, and all the original, everybody from that, from, from that show is dead, that they're, they're going to have other actors doing it, and it'll just be a pale comparison. Oh, you think, you think that's going to go on? I think, I think when the first oh, yeah. or second people die, it's going to go off. They're going to be now. They're going to be doing a remake of the Princess Bride. Like they are, they they're just going to keep recycling old stuff. Just 
another, you know, we've, we've had the all-female Ghostbusters, all this, because it's easier, it's just like Broadway, it's easier to get the yokels to come see the wedding singer on Broadway, because they've seen a movie and they're familiar with it, than, you know, some, you know, whoever the equivalent of, of a Latter-day Rodgers and Hammerstein, you know, mm-hmm. some new work that's, that's brilliant, that, that doesn't get it, it's, it's what's easy, what's cheap, what's mass-produced. We live in a very sad society that way. But with art and with everything else, and you know, you still have the classics, you still have the literature, you still have the old movies, you still have all that stuff. The original Simpsons, the you know, the original Cheers. Even though someday there's going to be a new fucking Sam Malone, and who knows? Oh God! (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Why? But why did they make a remake of the Honeymooners? Why did they make a remake? It's because they're lazy. Mm. It's all it is. Lazy. It's easy money, and and when your when your your whole job is uh, is is just to you know just to make your studio money easy money, they're going to go for the easy money as opposed to taking risks. 